Hi, I'm Jason Latour, the co-creator of Southern Bastards and the writer of Spider Gwen, and you are listening to 11 O'Clock Comics, motherfucker. <laughs> Devastating. Devastating. It was. There was there was no snapback, just perfect smooth sailing on that one. Just for you. I know. Well, I felt like, you know, it was it's fitting. It's 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 a special episode, so it deserves a little bit of a special rules of Nice. Were you outside at all today? Yeah. Uh briefly, yeah. Yeah. Hotter than hell. I feel like it may have been a little warmer yesterday. It was. It, it was. I mean, it wasn't. It wasn't cool by any stretch. We, although we did actually have the windows open because there was a bit of a breeze. But windy yeah, as hell we, too. Yeah. Yeah. So that was that helped a little bit. But yeah, no. We just we, we walked the neighborhood. Ended up hitting the the coffee shop and moseyed back home for the rest of the day. Aw, were you holding hands? Hmm. Little bit. Nice. My heart Aww. my heart went all pitter patter when you said that. And we hope that your hearts are going pitter patter because this is eleven o'clock comics, episode six hundred and fifteen. And I'm Vince B. You are Vince B, and I am David A. Price. That is facts, and I'm Chris Christopherson. <laughs> why why are you Chris Christopherson? Do I need a reason to be Chris Christopherson? Uh, no, he is pretty damn cool. But what was the impetus for using his name as... Your Literally story? free association. That's cool. I like that a lot. You should do more of that. Just just thought of something. Uh, try, I thought, what's an alliterative name with the same first and last name letter? And I the first one that came to mind was Chris Christopherson, which I don't know what that says about some deep part of my subconscious, but there you go. He's a cool man. But you're not Chris Christopherson. You're Jason Wood, everybody, all together. This is a a different little episode. We're going to just, we're going to narrow the focus down to one person. And we we have a guest, and he'll be in here shortly. But before we get to him, we have to tell you, about our sponsor, which is Discount Comic Book Service, DCBService.com. One more time, DCBService.com, where you can get your books, get them fast, and get them delivered right to your door with a minimum of effort. Falling off an ottoman is harder than ordering from Discount Comic Book Service. It's true. Unfortunately, the previews just came out last Wednesday, the new previews. Yes. Uh, so the website has not been updated with the specials. It takes time to import all that text. Not updated yet, but rest assured, when it is finally updated, the discounts will be both deep and plentiful. And if my cursory uh, pass-throughs of the previews is any indication, this one will be massive for me. As in nice. huge. Yeah. I have not looked at previews yet. There's a lot of good stuff in there. I haven't either. Lots. I plan on doing it tomorrow, though. Yeah. So there you go. I, well, I, one thing I won't be ordering is Scott Lobdell's Flash Forward, that's for sure. But anyway, <laughs> um, not, not to be <laughs> negative, not to be negative or anything, 
no, not at all. Go to Discount Comic Book Service, DCBService.com. Check it out. Look at all the specials. You're not going to find cheaper comic books and associated items anywhere. Do it. How about that? A little bit different this week. How's about it? I like it. I like the difference. The difference always works for me. Case in point, I haven't watched any season of Black Mirror after the first. I enjoyed the first, but for whatever reason, I'm not a regular TV watcher. So I was, uh, I just got done watching that Bob Dylan, Martin Scorsese thing that's on the Netflix now, the Rolling Thunder Review, which is incredible, by the way. Uh, you don't have to be a Dylan fan to like it, but it helps. And this thing came up. I see Miley Cyrus's face, huge, on my TV. I'm like, what the hell is this? I guess, well, I don't guess. Miley Cyrus did an episode of Black Mirror. And I said, I heard some stuff about this. Like, there was real negative uh, slapback about this episode. I said, what the hell? I'll watch it. So I watched it. I thought it was pretty fun. Uh, do you know the nature of the of the pushback? I don't. No, nor do I, because I, I, I agree with you. I, I my, my oldest son, who loves Black Mirror, said the same thing you just said, which is that it got ripped apart in the interwebs but i'm with you i thought it was it was clever and and the thing i guess what i'm asked the reason i asked is because the thing i will say about the episode is uh it, it's it is decidedly not like most of the other black mirror right uh shows because it's has somewhat of a happy ending mm-hmm. and maybe that's what bothered people but if mm-hmm. if that's what bothered people, then they're out of their mind because it was fun to have a happy ending for once. Yeah, I thought it was cute. Um, yeah. the, the little doll and with the 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 profanities spewing from this this electronic. Oh, as soon as they remove the yeah the the, the mental block inside yeah. the programming, it's great. Yeah. I thought it was a lot of fun. And but I mean, okay, I'm not going to front. I have a soft spot for Miley Cyrus. Anybody who, who doesn't anybody the Flaming Lips choose to work with are okay by me. Erica Badu, whatever. Miley Cyrus, she's on my my pass list because she has worked with the fam- Flaming Lips in the past. So, but I mean that said, I think she's fine. I, I thought mm-hmm. she was great in it. The the girl mm-hmm. has chops from working with Disney for so many years. She can act. She can sing. I thought it was wonderful. Preach, David. Did you see it? Not that episode, no. I've, I've, I tend to jump around a little bit with Black Mirror. I haven't seen all of the first season. I don't know if I've seen what I've seen of, of the second. I did see the opener for this current season um, with the virtual reality games. But, yeah, I, um, I'll, I'll, look for the, um, I'll look for that episode. It's cute. Yeah, I don't think you'll, you'll find anything distasteful about it. I thought it was pretty cute. There you go. What the heck are we drinking? Well, what the heck is David and myself drinking? Because mm. we know Mr. Saltpeter over here is drinking water. Not exactly. Uh, you're drinking iced tea. I don't know. What are you drinking? No, I, I'm drinking all-natural Canada Dry Mandarin Orange Sparkling Seltzer Water. <laughs> Okay, thank you. Well, Doesn't that sound delectable? It does. It does. Delectable. Whew. I am continuing to down the Wicked Weed Lieutenant Dank. I like it a lot, and I'm going back for more. Impressive. Yeah. What are you drinking, Sir David? Uh, I am enjoying some 
to end off the weekend. Uh, Dark Horse Cabernet Sauvignon. That's a hell of a way to do it. Yeah. Props to you. Thank you. Do we have any thank yous before we uh, introduce our guest? I don't think so. Uh, Uh, Yes, I I do have uh, a thank you. Wow. Um, Our good friend uh, and, and quite a quite a savvy connoisseur of comics in this own right. Mr. Jonathan O'Neill sent me a graphic novel called homesick by Jason walls, uh, from Tinto press. And, uh, I haven't read it yet. Cause it just, I just got it today. But, uh, if there's ever a set of endorsements on the back of a graphic novel to rope me in, this is it. Gene Yang said it's head and shoulders above most debut debut efforts, including my own, and Jeff Lemire says, Jason Walls is a cartoonist with a fresh voice and an incredible grasp of what makes a story tick. You don't so much read his work as let it wash over you like a really great song or poem. I can't wait to see what he does next. It's a hell of a pair of endorsements. So I uh, I am very much looking forward to diving into this sometime uh, in the next week or two. Sweet. Mm-hmm. Sounds good. That's right. All right. So you will hear the words of one Josh Bayer. He's going to tell you about a bunch of stuff. We go on a bunch of tangents. It was awesome to have him here, and now you can revel in what we just experienced. And we'll be back after the dust is settled to uh, talk to you some more. So listen to this. All right. Uh, You are about to hear from a man you've heard from before on this show. He is, uh, he's a triple threat as far as comics go. He's a fantastic illustrator. He's a writer and he's an editor, um, uh, a consummate creator. He has done uh, self-published works like Theth and uh, The Black Hood and Suspect Device and ROM and Raw Power, all amazing stuff. But uh, at the past couple of years, he's been going in a different direction with his brother Sam on the all-time comics line. And we've talked about them here before, Crime Destroyer and Bullwhip, Atlas, Blind Justice. And uh, all-time comics is currently in its second season at Floating World Comics. The man in question, you know him. I talk about him all the time. It's Josh Bayer. Hey. <laughs> What's up? Hey, Josh. How's it going, guys? <laughs> wow, nice intro. Thank you. Ah. Uh, I underplayed it too because I could gush, man. Um, oh, and he does. I do, I do. <laughs> but uh, when we last we talked to you, All Time Comics was pretty much in the middle of the first season. Okay. And uh, there were some things that I would love to pick your brain about. Sure. Most notably, Blind Justice number two. Oh yeah. And uh, along the lines, I mean, you introduced us to a bunch of really cool villains, right? You had the Psycho and the Revenger and Rain God and the Time Vampire. These characters were like comic booky villains. And then we get to Blind Justice number two, and you throw this Theodore Miller guy in there who was unlike any of the villains we saw before. He was a little too real, uncomfortably real. For me, where was the ins- where the inspiration come from for Theodore Miller? I don't quite remember moment the moment when I came up with him, but the general vibe of the comic was inspired by. I kept on thinking about uh, 
when I was like 15 and I got, I bought that issue of Daredevil where Frank Miller had John Buscema and Gary Tollock do the art. And there's a, it's called Badlands and Daredevil, it goes back. Frank Miller hadn't been on the book for a couple, a year and a half or two years. And he came back and he did this 25 page story, which was sort of like a, probably inspired by Jim Thompson. Look, in, in retrospect, you probably know it. You know the comic I'm talking about? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I haven't read it in quite a while, but I, I, we do know it. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's about as good as you can get. It's from with uh, it being uh, just a quiet little uh, tense uh, comic that has uh, that has roots in crime fiction. And I really wanted to do something that... Um, something that that's you know ha- had the same same uh feeling to it and uh, that's where i came up with the idea i can't remember exactly how i got the i got an image of uh I, the story kind of came to me and i got this image of um justice tracking this guy into the woods and it being sort of a desperate situation and the thing just kept on sort of snowballing from there I mean, originally it was, I really wanted it to be uh, 25 pages, but it ended up being about 20 pages longer than that. Yeah. It, about- it's pretty riveting stuff. And I Thanks. think Van Skyver just slaughtered it. It, it. it He did an amazing job. And Milgram too. Yeah. But uh, it just, I felt like I needed to take a shower after that issue because, <laughs> I mean, the violence is so over the top. He, um, Miller just bangs the shit out of uh, Justice's hands and they're all broken and bloody. And he still, he, he uses the rope. For, I mean, in the beginning of the issue, he talks to those two kids. And, and that yeah. was just like, that blew my mind too. Like, where did the God thing come from? The one kid's calling the other God and he's like, you don't know how to tie a, a knot. You got to do it. You know, it could save your life. Yeah. And that's exactly what he does. He, that rope saves his life at the end. I thought it Thank was just you. a brilliant piece of work. Yeah, it's nice when stuff comes to you like that when you have, I mean, you know, we've all seen stories that have, um, ha- that, have that structure where a writer's able to set it up and lay down something that pays off later. Mm-hmm. And your hope, your hope is that, you know, somebody who's trying to kind of find their way into doing this sort of writing, um, who had never done it before. I mean, in, in the past, most of my stuff was either adaptations, sort of jokes, uh, or just, you know, really free form or biography. And so, um, and I'd never really thought that I could, I never really thought that I had the skill set to tell stories that are structured the way the way that you know in, in a suspense genre kind of way. Right. But um, I just I just, I'm a big believer in imagination, and so I, I just went where I wanted to with it. I mean, a lot of the thing with the the guy the the kids. Um, I mean, I guess I, I think I was really inspired a little bit by. Um, some stuff in Velvet Glove, Cast and Iron, where uh, Clay runs into some cult, some cult members, and there's a hint of this vast, this vast, you know, uh, the workings of this cult. Like there's a logic to how the people talk to each other. I think they, I think one of the characters says, um, "My name is Beautiful Son because God says I'm beautiful," and uh, there's a leader who's like Manson-like, and they call him God. I was probably playing around a little bit with stuff like that, 
but a lot of things that I, a lot of the weirdness that works its way into my writing comes from things that little scraps of things that people have like said to me in the past. I, I was, when I was really young, I went to um, a rainbow gathering. I was like 19, like in 1989. And um, I remember meeting, meeting like a Krishna, a Harry, a sort of a self, self-appointed Harry Krishna guy who was sort of trying to convert me into, into uh, his belief system. And he was saying things, he was saying things that kind of ended up into the com- in the comic that were like, you, I remember her, him saying to me, Hey, you know, you might see that guy over there and think that he's, uh, you know, if you know what a rainbow gathering is, it's kind of like a grateful dead show without the dead and, or, or what, what burning man became later, or it's just like burning man without, as much creativity. It's just like a lot of, a lot of cheap drugs and camping. And, uh, <laughs> I remember there was like some old, some old weird flabby guy who was walking around in pink panties. And this guy said to me that, um, Hey man, you might think that guy looks really weird with his, 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 uh, pink panty trip, but you know what? He's you and he's God and I'm you, and I'm God, and everything is God. <laughs> and of course, of course, I remembered that for like 30 years. Yeah. And, and when I have to write, I try to put anything memorable into the writing and kind of recast, recast it in a new, in, in a service of the story I'm telling. Right. Well, and, and it's almost like Burroughs' cut-up method, in a sense, because you're taking all these isolated incidents from your life that have, you know, have no pertinence to the story you're telling, but they do after a while. Because you're 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 taking all these experiences, shuffling them around, making a story out of it. That's a great way to do it. Thanks. It's, it's like how many things really interesting happen to us. You know, when you start writing, all these days like all just seem the same, and then the things really ju- the things that jump out, um, you really you really like sometimes cling to because they're more emotionally charged. Right. So if you've ever seen uh, somebody taking a shit in public, I mean, you might feel uh, you you might like it, it, it might have a feeling of authenticity when you try to write about something really squalid if you try that memory into what you're into what you're writing mm-hmm. well and that's another thing i wanted to comment about the all-time comics universe is that it all feels fresh and new even though it springboards from your love of bronze age comics mm-hmm. and you you're just reworking um, and reinventing different tropes that we've seen over the years. But it, it feels like this universe is alive, that we're watching this organic thing just just grow and, and, and develop before our eyes, which is, it's a cool thing. And there's, there's no pretentiousness to it at all, which I love. Um, it's, it's, it revels in being a comic book. Cool. Good. That's what we're after. Yeah. And it's been fun. It's been fun, and the a lot of work, and there are a lot of moments where, um, well, I mean, the create the collaborators I have, it's um, we gel, and I think things happen when you gel. That are just like when bands are able to start writing songs, you ha- you have to have a sort of a chemistry with somebody. So, um, you know, the the way that the the stories come up like out of nowhere is is. Um, it's like a good sign that you're on the right track. Right. It certainly feels um, not that you worked it to death. It feels like it's it just 
basically writing itself, which is is great. It's a it's a neat thing to experience because we we all know the the formulaic approach that we've all been witness to for decades. But this feels anything but formulaic. I don't know next. what's going to happen next in in most <laughs> you know most of the books, and and that that hinges on Blind Justice number two. It came out of nowhere, and I was like, fuck, that was that was brutal. And Thanks. just yeah, is we going to see more of that? approach to the to storytelling in season two you know kind of yeah i mean season two when josh simmons and i planned it we decided to do uh one long isolated story that ended up being kind of like a um you know secret wars or early secret wars like the early event comics so we have one threat and the characters are all um are you know you're following like one the same story through the for all six ish it was gonna be five now it's six really seven if you count issue zero right and and uh in the back um in the back of it and i you know josh simmons is a pretty sophisticated writer so i brought him on board to help me sort of keep all these plates spinning and um then but i'm pretty uh i, I like Blind Justice a lot. He's a character I relate to the most. Um, and it's one I have the, a lot of affection for. Uh, so I wrote a, um, a a sort of a mini story with uh, Blind Justice. And I brought in a collaborator named Jeff Test. And you might, if you follow my Instagram, I'm, I'm in, currently in the process of coloring it. Mm-hmm. I think in, a lot, think in a lot of ways it has the same sort of, uh, it's, it's similar to issue Blind Justice 2, it's like another story of, um, full of like an isolated weirdo and, um, has the same kind of, uh, weirdness and the same kind of, um, a lot of the other elements you were talking about that are in Blind Justice 2. It's not as ambitious in some ways, but it's more ambitious than others. Are you going to keep the mystery of, uh, Mr. Schrader behind a curtain, hopefully, because, there's really no sensible way that this guy can evade all these bullets. And I mean, he goes into battle with nothing but a, a, a big mallet and he survives yeah. being blown apart. Like where a normal man would have been dead uh, almost immediately, but he uses cardboard and duct tape and, and whatever he has around. And yet he keeps surviving. Right. And I'm sure you have something, the reasoning for that, but I don't ever want to know why this guy, why he never goes down, because that's the mystique to me for the character. It's just this this schmo who's in a uh, uh, an inpatient facility, inpatient facility for cranial trauma victims, and yet he's not aware. But then he becomes aware when when justice needs to be avenged, and it's just, it's cool, but it doesn't it doesn't make much sense how this guy can do it, and I don't want to know how he can do it. <laughs> Yeah, mystique is a really is a really um, is a key phrase. I mean, a mystique can be uh, really easily unraveled, and um, and uh, the mystique itself can be is, is. I mean, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I want to keep it ambiguous or if in the future I want to talk about it. I remember um, Phil Jimenez was my teacher at SBA, and he was oh, telling me about. Oh, he's a funny guy. He was such yeah. a good. He was such a, um, he's a really good talker. Um, talk, he's very into storytelling and subtext and his sense of what makes 
what makes stories cool and what his aesthetics are. And I remember him talking about like there was something going on in DC where they had to figure out like um, they had to figure out like why oh that word again mystique why mystique was blue or why Beast Boy was green or something like that. And he's just like they're just fucking comics. They're blue. <laughs> Go tell another story. You don't have to like tell us this, you know, tell us the the hyper the origin of you know their blue green skin. Right. Well, as a lot of comic fans focus on the unnecessary details. I mean, it's part of what fandom at large does. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. But I mean, it really see. doesn't matter. No, it, it it absolutely doesn't matter in in the grand scheme of things. But if I, I think from from my perspective, if if you want me to be invested in this world, then then the no matter how outlandish or how crazy the experiments are that turn someone into something, they're still the physics of that world still need to kind of make sense. So so you can't even though you know, Wolverine's claws pop and and they're laced, his bones are laced with adamantium. He still you know he can't blow on his thumb and turn his hand in, into a big hammer. It, it's still <laughs> so there still needs to be some sort of i don't want to say realism in these stories but there there needs to be some some continuity as far as how you're going to because if you're talking about a a world where yeah beast boy is green and you know he was brought up by the doom patrol and and i mean and those are some outrageous individuals so it's i i yes it is absolutely comics and and you can can scoff and say there's it doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things, but but for people to put their money in month in month out and and follow these stories and and care about these characters, I think you can't just kind of say it's just comics and shrug it off. Right, right, that makes sense. Well, I mean, with Blind Justice, um, I have a couple of different ideas about who he is and why why uh, his abilities work the way they do. Um, he. Uh, it's about self-belief. He just believes he's indestructible mm-hmm. and he, um, and to some degree he can get really fucked up and recovered. I mean, in the real world, uh, you know, it's, it's like when you see a movie, you might see somebody who is, uh, not super powered and they get swatted by the Hulk and they hit a wall and they crash onto the top of a car. And in real life, you'd have years and years and years of physical trauma. You'd have back pain from that and nerve damage that you would never recover from. And um, I guess writers do that for the sake of, you know, ex- expediency. Right. Sometimes it's like they have to, it, it, they, if they believe that the people suspend belief and go with it, then they'll put it in there. So blind justice is, he gets destroyed to a point where nobody would ever, ever be able to recover for real. And for now, that is, um, it's, it's, um, no, he's not going to, he's not going to blow in his thumb and turn into a helicopter like uh, Inspector Gadget. <laughs> but, <laughs> but there'll be, you know, I feel like that's the limits of like how much he's able to keep on going just based on self-belief um, are, uh, are, are things I can, I can, you know, that are, uh, I'm going to keep kind of elastic. Right. I mean, particularly when he had his hands crushed in issue two, I thought about it a few times. I'm like, you're, even if, even if the bones healed, they'd be, you know, your hands would be like horseshoes for the rest of your life at best. But, um, you know, he just keeps on going. 
Right. And Vance Giver did an awesome job on that too. Those that was it was gut wrenching just to see the digits all at weird angles and uh, the the ripped gloves. It, it, it was an amazing issue. But another he, thing I like about I I gotta say he did a great job. His story. He's a consummate cartoonist. Mm-hmm. I actually redrew those uh, hands on that sequence though. Oh, well, and I, you did an awesome job. <laughs> I, I sent him um, imagery from. League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, the, the part where Sherlock Holmes throws uh, Moriarty over a cliff and Kevin O'Neill did this amazing image of his broken hand mm-hmm. with all the fingers splayed out. And um, Noah Noah drew it and Al Milgram inked it. And then I there was two pages where one where he holds up his hands and another one where he's, it's like a three-quarter splash page where he's staring at his hands. And I just re, I wanted them to be more gory. So I redrew them, repenciled them, gave them the Jason T. Miles from, uh, at, from Ray from Fantagraphics. And he was our like copy editor on the whole thing. And, uh, or I don't know his position as executive co-editor, uh, project quality, uh, coordinator. And he, and he's a great, he's a really, really good artist and he inked it. And, um, that's the story of those two panels. Nice. There's a couple. A couple other minor things that I I I, I drew. Um, there was a part where uh, Justice is um, in his car, and there was like I had in my notes that you can see a map, you can see his mask, and he's supposed to be. Um, I, anyways, there was some like details that Noah left out, and I just add, and I asked him if it was okay if I just added stuff, you know, kind of citing the example of all the times in Marvel when they would have, you know, sometimes a lesser artist going in and adding details to Jack Kirby's work. And I was like, Hey man, maybe I'm a lesser artist, but can I, is it okay if I have the freedom to go ahead and, uh, and add to this? And he was like, sure, do whatever you want. He wasn't, he wasn't that attached to it. Whatever serves the story, right? Yeah. 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 Uh, where was I going? Oh, so Jason T. Miles. I agree. Yeah. I think he's he's a pretty phenomenal artist. I have a a couple of minis from him called Pines, I believe. Um, I think I've seen that. Yeah. yeah, and he's great. I mean, he's very much in the Panther mold, which you know that is a clarion call for me to to at least check out the work. But I think he's incredible as well too. It it's amazing how you you attract these these not huge names, but at least among fandom at large. But guys like you know indie lovers like myself and, and others, we know these names and they seem to be all Ben Mara just coming to roost at, at all time comics. And it's a, it's a wonderful look to the imprint. It's the, the, I think the art has been just um, perfect so far. I know how lucky I, I, I can't even say how lucky I am to have him do that work every time. Even if I'm like looking, sometimes I have to Google to look for imagery all-time comics imagery um, mm-hmm. online because I forget what something looks like. His images come up and I'm just like, you know, I think it's, I think it's up there among the best stuff that he's done. Oh yeah. It's, it's just, um, I, I've loved Ben's work for uh, a long time I've, and he's, to me, he's just pure, pure comics. Yep. Well, now let's get into the, the transition. All-time comics originally began at Fantagraphics and now you've taken roost at Floating World, and yeah. uh, I think it's a better fit. Um, I have the the trade in my hand, and this thing has presence. 
It's thick. The printing is amazing. The paper's wonderful. Um, and, you know, it's just loaded with the, the back matters. It's just amazing. Um, how did this transition come about? Oh, well, these guys are almost like they're a community out there. I mean, that's in, uh, I think, I think they're all in the same city. Uh, I'm in New York. Those uh, Footing Worlds in Seattle, um, Jason uh, T. Miles and Jason Le- uh, Le- Le- How do you say his last name? Livian? Livian? Le- uh, Le- I'm not the authority on pronouncing Le- anything. Yeah, I fuck Jason. everything up. Jason Leviathan. <laughs> he, he, um, he, uh, who runs Footing World, they knew each other. And, um, you know, we were designed to be a an imprint. It doesn't really matter to me. Um, as long as I'm partnered with somebody who can put the books out there, um, it was it. It's uh, that's like my um, objective. So Fanographics was cool to be on. Floating World's cool to be on. And um, and like you said, they're well, I mean, it's they're smaller and um they're like more in they're more invested in in the comics i mean fanographics um they put out a lot of books per year and so uh the the amount of the amount of like attention you're going to get from them is 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 divided in amongst a lot of other creators but at floating world you know it's a smaller 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 pool um i talk with the levian uh with jason leviathan um all the time <laughs> about the work and um decisions that we're making and um it's really cool it's really like i mean fan is so established it's it, it's not like um it's not the same as coming on to a small this is like what it must this is like what i imagine it was on like to be on a an indie label when you're a band when you're a band back in the days when i was growing up it feels like you're you're aware of like every component about it and how much they're they're struggling and you're you have a they let you know about production details. Um, Fanta is really really established and it's just a different you, you it's a different the way that you uh, lock into the mechanism is completely different. I get the sense of floating world growing around me. Right, and they have an impeccable track record. I mean, you you mentioned. Um you tied it to music and record labels floating world feels like sub pop to me right now. Cause mm-hmm. you look at their catalog and like Carlos Gonzalez's gates of plasma and the dark garbage book that, um, uh, what's the name? Uh, Michael, uh, Jean Michael Frank did. I mean, okay. I, I keep an eye on floating world. I haven't read anything from floating world that, that wasn't wonderful. And it's, it's, ba- it's, it's a, a cool aesthetic. They, they're keeping it very, indie and very experimental and grassroots and i think that's why i think all time is is a perfect fit for floating world awesome yeah. i have to check out other books and for i'm i'm really but i've I, the more i become a maker the more, less i become a reader well, i think that's one of the sacrifices you have to make right um, I, it probably is yeah. i mean i used to really live through the comics i read and i mean as as recently as uh, like I would say 2005, I was still, I mean, I would just lay in my bed and like read, read and reread comics. And now I have a stack of them. I mean, including some like favorite creators, but they, um, I, I look at what they do and then I, I don't know. I mean, not to say I'm like a cool, like a Robert Mitchum type, but I, I know Robert Mitchum didn't used to go watch movies. He would, 
you know, becomes different once you, once you're making them. Sure. Because ideas are like a virus. So you can consume all this stuff and whether you realize it or not, some of that of what you've seen is going to leach into your creative process. And I, I completely understand not wanting to, to, I don't want to say dilute, but, but taint your approach to all time by, you know, you've had enough influences in your life to this point. Like, I don't That's think, right. I don't think you need to, to just gobble up all this entertainment. Just focus That's on right. I, I don't think it would hurt to see, I mean, I would love to be more in touch with what's going on with uh with so many comics i think the last superhero comic i read was um batman is lost in the woods which came out on um i bought it from janelle hessig and cake at cake have you seen that no it's like an unauthorized batman comic and it feels like daniel klaus wrote and drew it but like like drunk in a bar or something he <laughs> like like it feels like he painted he painted on the back of cocktail napkins it's a great comic it's really nicely done and it's really loose i gotta and look into you, that you gotta see it yeah it's it i, I don't remember i mean Je- janelle she runs uh gimme action comics and uh it is i'm, I'm not and, and she also works with kitchen sink i'm not sure if it's on either of those wait no last gasp excuse me oh kitchen nice sink. yeah well there's a um, weird tradition of unauthorized Batman comics by by indie artists. Josh Simmons did one. Of course. It's yeah, amazing. and it's friggin' incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which uh, I'm I'm always mystified. I mean, Fanagraphics back in the day used to push this the conception that mainstream comics are bad. Right? And they used to yeah. especially in the pages of the journal, they used to hammer it home. And I'm, I'm, I would love to do a thesis, a research paper on, or, or try and just pinpoint the exact moment when mainstream comics weren't all that bad with indie artists. They it's were, probably, were, you know, just, like I'm sorry. Go no, ahead. go ahead. You're good. Well, it's like what happened with punk. It's like, um, I've been rereading, I've been reading, uh, this band should, could be your life. Have you ever, you ever read that? No. Uh, what's the subject? It's a, it's about it's music it's independent music from 1980 till 1991 Ooh. and it's by the authors uh, Michael somebody's a fat book but I'm listening to the audio book and it's just every chapter is a chapter on Fugazi and a chapter on Black Flag and there's a chapter on Husker Du and they talk about how um, it was absolutely you know all these all these hard rock kids threw out their Black Sabbath albums and when they discovered punk. And then blacks and Black Flag was on the forefront of of encouraging you know this encur- encouraging this revolt against old music, and then all of a sudden it was absolutely you know it was absolutely uncool to like that to like metal, and then Black Flag was like you know it's full it came full circle. First of all, they were brave enough to say we're going to slow it down. And we're going to make, we're going to embrace our heavy, our heavy metal roots and make it, and we don't care if it's, if you say it's not punk. And I think there's a, the moment when that happened, I mean, Skibber Be Bye Bye was um, a big moment. I think a big watershed in indie creators embracing um, superhero comics. If you, do you know that book? Oh shit. I'm sorry. Not Skibber Be Bye Bye. Um, Oh Christ. What's it called? It's got a, 
Skibbery Be Bye Bye is, is um, Ron Rage. Yeah. Yeah, it's not like I'm talking baby talk now, but it's this um it's a collection of comics by indie artists that were all made to benefit Marvel in two thousand and two when Marvel went into section eight. Yes. And, and um I thought about Ron Rage because I think that Ron Rage's Spider Man comic is in there and Brian Ralph did a Hulk comic and uh, I think a lot of Fort Thunder people were in it. It it does have a weird gibberish kind of name. Right. Uber or something. Yeah, I, yeah. Oh, geez, you're right. It's Goober Skeeber or Skeeber something like that. Uh, yeah. I remember when that thing came out, and it it now it's pretty hard to get. And oh, I oh no shit. Yeah, yeah. I have a copy somewhere. Nice, but <laughs> I mean, and then you could see once that thing found an audience, uh, someone at Marvel noticed. And remember when Marvel did the Strange Tales anthology and you had the Hernandez brothers in there and it was just a bunch of, of indie artists just taking their stab at Marvel characters. And then it became – I mean it, it's not anything to be frowned upon. These things are part of our lifeblood. We consumed them when we were kids and then all of a sudden it became not cool to like this stuff. But it never left us, yeah. right? And, yeah. and again, that's another – facet of the all-time comics universe that i love because you don't you don't front i mean you're a superhero fan from a certain period in time true but you you don't make any bones about it. like this is these are superhero comics and they're there's some pretty damn good superhero comics too thanks now i, I just know, i always felt oh sorry Vince, no. I, was say, I always felt that the uh that the um like the division was an artifice like I, like for almost sort of people battled to say there was a division when there really wasn't in the sense that like most people on the consumer side enjoyed or were capable of enjoying uh you know a vast array of comics like we like the three of us like we we've read a shit ton of indie books that you know the comics journal gushed over at at the time they came out and we love superhero comics like and i think that generationally speaking it got got to a point where like this next generation of 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 creators on the indie side like Josh and, you know, like our Pittsburgh crew, you know, like, like, uh, like Pisker and rug and Sholey and all those guys, like it, like they, they just liked what they liked and they were unapologetic about the fact that they fucking loved nineties, you know, Liefeld and, and McFarlane comics. And they also liked to do, you know, wild and crazy indie shit that, that doesn't look like anything that Marvel or DC would ever, you know, publish it. It's just like, I, I, so it's an interesting question. Like, when did it when when did it change? But I don't look at it as a sea change. I look at it as kind of like a a very slow um, pulling away of an artificial skin. Like it's like mm-hmm. in V. It's like there was this. You know, they they looked human, but they were really lizards. Like we all were lizards. Like the like most of us liked both from the jump. It's just like people felt they needed to take a side, and that was. I'm going to put a lot of that on the comics journal. Like oh, I think they you should they, put most they, of it on the comics yeah, journal. Yeah, like like they yeah. always like they you know they as you know like they they always took the tact of like if it's big two it's shit like yeah. period end of story and like that's ridiculous and just like you know and and just like it's ridiculous to think that everything that that uh, an indie an indie publisher or self publisher ever came out or every zine not every zine is great right I mean sometimes right. a zine is a shitty zine so like I don't know I'm just I'm glad I'm glad we're well past that like I'm glad that in the in the decade plus we've been doing the show that uh, like the, all of that bullshit has gone away. And, you know, we can talk about anything we want and not worry like, Oh, is the audience going to groove on what we're talking about? Like, fuck it. Like if we want to talk about, you know, um, war of realms, you know, tomorrow night, like people, some people will dig it. And, and we can talk about, 
you know, uh, Zerosis tonight. Like it's it's all good, right? Like it's just yeah, it's, right. comics is comics. But it was I a hypocritical that. approach because while Gary and company would say mainstream comics are, are shit, Frank Miller wanted to talk to them. Hey, that was all right. You know, we'll right. we'll interview Miller for thirty pages or forty pages, and and they did it with McFarlane and a bunch of people. But I I can understand drumming up that kind of mystique around your 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 periodical just to um, separate you from the the pack, right? I mean, you there was a certain group of people that bought into that way of thinking. And it, right. it for, you know, it's it was hard to break. I remember, I I read, I have an almost complete run of the journal, and yeah. I would I would buy and read the journal, but also on my stack was friggin' Spider Man, X Men. Like I read the other stuff too, and it, it it when I read the journal, it made me feel like I was cheating a little bit on 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 one mode of thinking, but then I also loved my Panther and my my you know those guys, and so or or Mark Bayer, like come on. Um, yep. Raw magazine. Rob was seminal for me. So, I, and it's it's nice not having to have different facets. Like it's all comics, right? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I think that Kim and Gary were really good at what they did. They're good at these. They're good at the. I mean, Kim was like Oscar Wilde, and he was. Uh, you gotta. Um, I'd much rather hear. You know, him versus him versus some of the shit that's going on now with comics and like these loudmouth, you know, uh, these loudmouth fans, um, all these this toxic male bullshit that's going on. Yeah. I'm much, it's like it's like thinking I'd rather it's like I'd rather hear Obama say something I didn't agree with and Trump say anything. It's like Kim was I'd much rather hear him elegantly shit on superhero comics, even if it's flawed and hypocritical, than almost any any of the current mainstream dialogues that are going on. Right. It's kinda of like the comics reporter, right? And 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 there's an elegant way to do it and with style and panache and then there's these guys that are just typing it out from, you know mm-hmm. the home base. And um I I've learned to filter all that shit out. Mm-hmm. If it doesn't contribute positively to the art form, uh, let's discuss this guy's art style, uh, or the you know this yeah. writer the way he structures the story. I don't I don't care if you're upset about Wolverine's daughter. It's just it, it's irrelevant. It doesn't. So so like what's going on with Wolverine's daughter? I saw a picture of her. Is it, <laughs> is, it is she's all blonde? Is it like did he is the female Thor the mother? I have, oh God, I have I have no, no I have no idea. It just popped up in a copy. That's, They're trying to recapture. You remember Marvel Comics Presents the weekly that came out? Sure it, do. Yeah. They're, they're trying to re- recapture that, and it's. I mean, they're failing. I think on all levels. But yeah. um, this is a thing where they just throw this character in. It's the same approach to Wolverine. We didn't know Jack about Wolverine for a lot of years, and that's what they're going to do with this. They just throw this character in. Oh, it's Wolverine's daughter. Well, where'd she? Co-? All these these possibilities and questions come up, and they're just. It's a carrot on a stick. It's a way to get them to for you to buy more comics. Yeah, and not not to get off on a tangent because we're here to talk about uh, uh, Josh's stuff. But but I will say like the Wolverine's daughter is a classic example of something I think that is worthy of criticism with the big two, which is to me there's very little if any creative impulse to that. That is purely dollar driven, and it's sure. the problem with that is that it's so formulaic, right? Because let's be honest, I mean most of mainstream comic readers, at least those that still pay for their comics, uh, are 
you know, dudes that are in their 30s, 40s, 50s, right? We've been reading these comics and these stories a lot. And with that comes a lot of repetitiveness. And I think that's one of those things that just cries so foul to me, which is that let's take breakout legendary character that we sell shit tons of and create a new archetype by changing one thing about them. Right. And like they've done that so many times with Wolverine, right? There's Dokken, there's X-23, there's old man Logan can go on and on. And now we're going to have a, you know, we, we had a, we had a dark haired clone female, which now is her own character. And to her, in her defense, she's, she's evolved into her own character. So now it's like, oh, let's have a buxom blonde version of Wolverine. Like, why? Like, it's it's <laughs> like it, it like there's nothing creative about it, right? Like, that's literally creation by number. That is like, let's take all the let's 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 write a list of the twenty traits that Wolverine possesses, and then we're going to do Mad Libs and we're going to swap out two of them, and we have a new character. Like, and as a person who does still read lots of superhero comics or at least attempts to, those are the kind of things that just make my dick go limp. It, it's just, it's so frustrating to me. Well, but, going uh, back to one thing you said, Wolverine's son, his name's pronounced Dokken, like the band. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's spelled D-A-K-E-N. Right. Oh, I would have thought it was Daken. How, so that's a stat. Have people discussed before how that sounds like D-O-K-K-E-N? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've, I've thought that it sounds like that, like, Probably by design, but I don't know that I've ever seen a treatise on on the name being a play on that. Oh my god, that's the best character ever! <laughs> <laughs> Finally, someone said that. Yeah, seriously, you just—that was like, the first first time that was ever said in the universe. He's like kind of t- he's like taller than Wolverine, right? Yeah, yeah. That's stupid. He's, Why is he so tall? taller? He's pansexual. He has uh, uh, two claws that's instead of two's. three. Right. No, he's got the third coming out of his wrist. Oh, right. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's yeah. right. They come out of the other side anatomically impossible. Yes. Um, he has a ponytail, and uh, yeah, and uh, that's that's about it. Yeah. Okay. He doesn't have metal. He doesn't. Well, he does have metal claw. I don't know. I don't think he has metal bones. <laughs> it's too yeah. much. It's, it's right. just too much. It okay. does fit in though, because it's like the vampire scientist looking at his screens on the pit, and he's seeing a universe where there's a pansexual tall version of Wolverine, and that's docking. There you go. Bringing it back to all-time comics, my man. That's right. Yeah. I mean, I just want to write comics that are all about his links to the band Dokken. I'm going to spell out. Uh, I have to admit, I have many Dokken albums. I do. They, I, um, he, could, he could fight Satan. He could defend them from Satan. <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know, getting back to the time vampire scientist... When yes. he's when he's looking at his monitors and stuff, I love that you stuck Rob Power in there. Oh, thanks. That was a uh, that was a uh, uh, Josh Simmons did that. Oh, okay. I mean, yeah. it wasn't at at your um like you didn't in- indicate him to do that. He just put it in there. No, I just did it. Oh, that's great. In, in issue zero, right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> There's another thing about issue zero that I had me scratching my head a little bit. The the giant mouse with uh, an appetite for dick. Like, <laughs> where where did that come from? Oh wait, remind me. What is it? The There's mouse. The the, the, the old mouse. guy with the the. Oh the... yeah! Oh yeah! That was so cool. Yeah. Um, it's on the cover too. Yeah, but yeah. it's it's cleverly concealed on the cover. But inside, <laughs> when when the kid uh, sees the the old man and the, the rats with him, and he's just like. It's it's pretty obvious what's going on. Like that rat's chowing down. It's, and Especially I said, since he says, you know, that's how you get ahead. 
yeah, I was just in my script. I wrote, um, I wrote that uh, the kid comes into the alley, and there should be a a scene where he looks up and he's hoping there'd be a pie on the window. Like yeah, a yes. cartoon. And I just wanted it to be. I just, I was just like, well, what do you see in an alleys or always? Um, you always see unknown, unsavory things whenever you go to abandoned spots, and I just thought thought that'd be really jarring if there was uh, if there was a Monopoly man getting head from a rat. <laughs> and and I like I like it when um, I like you know I look at a lot of old nineteen twenties cartoons. I have this great book. Um, it's a book if you haven't seen it. It's called um, The Goat Getters. It's all nineteen twenties cartoons, which is edited by. Um, uh, I'm slipping. Name slipping my mind. Who, who's the artist? I'm from hell. Alan Moore. Oh, um, no, sorry, no, no, Eddie Campbell. No. Eddie yeah, Campbell. Eddie. Yeah, Eddie, Eddie Campbell. Eddie Campbell is the editor of it. I bought it, um, and it's just all of these hugely like it's a lot of that 1920s like single frame cartoons with lots of visual metaphors. You know, a lot of it's really it's a, a lot of the cartoons were around a fight between Jack Johnson and Jack Dempsey, I think. But um, so there's all of these cartoons illustrating the upcoming fight. And, um, you know, I really, I really like very icon- iconography. So I like it when I can just throw a big, like something that almost belongs from another, um, that, that, that is uh, from the car- type of cartoons I like to do. I, if I can have somebody... You know, if I can have um, a, 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 a um, what's another example that's like, Mono- you know, the Monopoly man getting his dick sucked by a rat is almost like a, a capitalist, like, you know, an anti-capitalist cartoon. So um, sort of, not really, but the, um, the anytime I can have that kind of iconography going into the superhero comic, I'm like tying the roots of different types of comics that I like all together. Right. You know, if I can have somebody looking at something and have the dot, dot, dots coming from their eyes, if I can, you know, I, I like to do that sort of thing. Um, so, yeah, to me, that's why I put it in there. Well, it's great. I mean, I, I had a Lynchian um, effect uh, from it where there's these ripples of strangeness that, that go through the work. And I don't think they I mean, I'm glad you explained it, but. It's just an. It, 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 I think it's successful in the fact that it creates unease, which I'm, I'm assuming that's what the de- the desire was in the first place. But the more you explain it, I think um, it's more of a uh, a felt experience more like, than than a cognitive one. Like you don't really have to know why it's happening, but when you see a rat blowing a the Monopoly man, it just instills <laughs> instills these feelings in you that um it's effective let's just put it that way thank you or richard nixon and g gordon lead lydia yeah <laughs> jason hasn't sex. read you haven't read raw power you need to read it it's, yeah that is facts yeah, it's facts. it's it's bonkers yeah amazing stuff but so let's talk about xerosis deathscape while we're at it okay. um the grand plan you said is six issues well, yeah, it's definitely going to be six now. Um, we have uh, so seven again, including issue zero. It'll be okay. coming out monthly. Um, I, I'd have to 
the, the rest of the guys are up, more up on the printing schedule, but I believe it's coming out monthly. We had the first issue just come out or it's coming out um, any day. And the second issue will be out. So that's July and then the second issue in August, third issue in September. We've got um, we have covers by uh, we we put we posted issue three, which has a cover by Art of Skinner from Art of Skinner. We have um, boy, man, are you kidding me? No, it's, we did a great cover. We have uh, we have two covers by Das, who did the cover for issue one, and he did the cover for issue zero. We have uh, the great Tara Booth. She did a cover uh, image of um, Bullwhip, and we have a cover by uh, Thomas Toy is going to be doing issue five, and he's kind of um, you know he's somebody that I that I know. Uh, he has. A, pretty decent following but i think he's i think he's like an absolute um i think he's like one of the all-time greats i think he'll be like historically like an important cartoonist and somebody who's remembered and loved a lot he's stuff is is um he does the type of comics i wish i could do um he does he's doing issue five right now the cover for it issue six is a wraparound cover by trevor oh trevor Trevor yeah. Von Eden, when is he coming? Nice. Is he doing any sequentials? Oh, yeah, yeah. He's doing almost all of them. So oh, issue, issue one is has a 10-page kind of um, preamble, like a, uh, what do you call it, the beginning of a story? Not prequel, but a, a prologue. prologue. Yeah. A prologue yeah. by uh, drawn by Gabrielle Bell. And then we have a, like, 20 pages by Trevor. And then issue two has a is mostly Trevor with a short sequence by um oh by uh, Ben Mara and um um Land, Landgraf. Landgraf is also I think a super I mean I think he's he's almost like a like a, a poor man's Raymond Pettibone. Mm-hmm. And he uh, so he's him and Mara together are great. Then issue three has a sequence by Again, it's almost all Trevor, and then it has this a sequence in the middle, which is by me and Josh Simmons, and then like penciled by me and Josh or Josh and me. I think he did the preliminary pencils. I tightened them, and then he inked them, and then that dovetails into a Thomas Toy sequence. I think that's that's the issue, which um, it's the issue where it's the next issue which we're the most excited about because it's just such a good fusion of um the two sides of the comic spectrum that we're bringing together then i think um issues uh issue four i think is all trevor and then five and six have oh no um issue four is all trevor except there's a 10 page sequence by julia gafor with josh simmons inking and then issue uh five and six are all trevor except i have that backup feature which is by me and jeff test nice do you enjoy wearing the editor's hat? Yeah, I do. I've learned, I enjoy I enjoy how much I learn from this process. I mean, in um it's uh I think it's it's cool it's, you know, and I, and I also got to give other people credit. We have uh Shanna uh I don't know pronounce her last name. I'm just going to make up names for all my friends. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Mistakic, Mistakic. Um, she's somebody who 
does a lot of uh, overseeing of the project now. Jason does a lot of bo- bo- both of the Jasons, Jason T. Miles and Jason Leviathan do a lot of overseeing. Josh has done his share of editing and co- and making sure everything comes out all right. And so in some ways I'm um, in some ways uh, I'm spared of having to dot every T and cross every oops, I mean dot every I and cross every T um, because I have the t- this whole team working for me. Another enjoyable part of it is just to see if you can learn how to make these kinds of comics. I think, I mean, it, to me, on a certain level, I mean, I'm sentimental for superhero comics, but I, I don't. I could be. I, it could be any kind of comic almost. If you if you had me doing comic adaptations of the Who's the Boss franchise, <laughs> and that was that that was what I, was on my plate. I would learn a ton from it, just like you would learn a ton from working at Archie Comics or, um, uh, I can't, you know, working for Mexican soap opera comics. Right. It's they're all having to work on a team is really um, interesting, and it really will it'll make you do things that are that are a little bit beyond out of your comfort zone. Right, and there's also the possibility of those happy little accidents that weren't really accidents at all, but came up in the creative process and it worked out for the better. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, I think the team, uh, from what we've seen so far, you just, you're creating a a crack team that just the, the very different voices all come together into one beautiful song. And it's just, it's amazing to see this happening. Um, how many seasons of all time are we going to get? Is this like a in an infinite project, or is there a set end point to this experiment? Yeah, there's not a set end point, but I don't. I think that I I'm just aiming for um, season three, and uh, I'm at that point. Um, it'll have been like seven years of working on this project. We first started planning it in 2013. I got a hold of. Herb Trimpey in 2000 in 2014 and Ben Morrow was involved all the way back then. We worked on it for two years together. Um, and then it came out in 2016 and now we're, you know, we've been working, uh, you know, m- me and Josh just rewrote a sequence that we wrote two years ago that I, um, I was punching up some of the dialogue on yesterday and, um, it was, uh, it's, um, you know, that's a long time. At the point when it's seven years, you can easily round it up to a decade. I mean, it's, I don't necessarily see doing this forever. Um, it's, uh, and, and, you know, as much as I dig, as I dig doing it, it is a side project. My own personal work is still my priority. I have uh, another book coming out in the fall from Tinto Press that I've been working on for, I drew, wrote and colored for about four years and it's been uh it's been gestating in the lap for the last year and it's finally coming out um going to premiere in september which is uh, tomorrow forever and that's a sequel to my book theft and then i also have a comic that ties into it called black star which is a um when i did theft there was like a comic that he was reading and i actually drew that comic it was uh, mr incompleto and then um, right. all my, almost all my projects have had sort of a story within the story, and I usually like to write that story. And um, I have uh, in Raw Power Two, I had him reading a 
a comic that I kind of put it, I put some of in the back of, I actually drew more of it. And Rom actually was like theft in reverse. Rom one and two were me doing the comic that a kid was reading. And then I invented the kid who was reading it. So in tomorrow forever, the character grown up theft is reading an old Frankenstein comic. And then I did, I basically drew the whole comic and then we're releasing that as something that's going to be a companion piece to the book. So I have two books coming out at the same time, all the all time comic stuff is coming out. Can't wait. Now on the website, it says that uh, tomorrow forever sold out. You did print that. We did a pre printing, like a, we did a, a version of like a, a run of like 50 copies and it's slightly, you know, the ver- final, we wanted to see if there's any mistakes in it and how it looked and um, I changed some of the coloring and took out a couple of pages. And we also decided at that point to make the to make the it's originally the Frankenstein comic was just jammed into the book. And we decided to make that a separate printing. But it's still even without the Frankenstein book, it's still almost 200 pages. Wow. And you don't you don't have any of those left? I do not. Somebody Damn. just asked about it. Um, I think, anyways, it'll be out in a couple months. Cool. And that's coming out from all, Tinto. Yeah, yeah. It's already July, uh, starting tomorrow. Just um, SPX is September 14th. Two and a half months is going to go by like nothing. Yeah. Can't wait. Um, your stuff is always the highlight of uh, for me whenever it comes out. I've I've devoured your, the the theft stuff and the mystery incompleto. I mean, it's just again, you have this cohesive universe where, like you said, you go back and invent a character that you used in a previous work. To oh yeah, it, it's it's just you're just amazing. And thank uh, you that that was a, that was a happy accident. I mean, that really did. I, that really was something that came about with no plan. Yeah, I don't believe in happy accidents. They they, they happen for a reason. Yeah, I mean, how's by the way, how's the teaching coming along? It's good. I just came back from uh, a class today. Um, this, especially my comics class this morning was especially cool. I like to introduce wicked variables in the process when in, in my classes. Um, I take if I see they're using a certain implement with everything they do, I'll take it away from them. And have them have them do something else, or uh, I blindfolded one kid and <laughs> and had him draw, and just to put in um, these un, unplanned for instances where maybe you'll get something out of it, maybe you will adopt a new way of thinking visually. You know, it, it's why not? I mean, it doesn't cost anything. They're also worried about the grade and you know making each drawing the best they've ever done, which is a it's an impossible uh, challenge. You can't live up to – you'll never do it. Each drawing but, is a drawing. It's not the best one you've ever done. It's the next one. Where um, Where are you teaching? Uh, Marywood University mm-hmm. in uh, Scranton, Pennsylvania. That's, I mean, it's awesome that you're willing to go in there and get your hands dirty like that. It's, I think I think it is important to – I mean, I think it's a mark of a good teacher that you tailor what you're doing to each individual – well, our classes aren't that big uh, or that large, so I can do it um, when there's you know ten ten kids. You can actually devote the time necessary for each one. But how big? Uh, how many kids do you have in your class? It just depends. I, I teach so many different. I'm proud to say I teach at so many different places. This morning uh, it was about nine or ten, 
um, different age groups. It was at the 92nd Street Y. And um, they, uh, th- those, the students this semester, I mean, they all came. It's a very, very beginning class, but they've all been coming in and doing, um, doing uh, about as advanced work as you could hope for, especially from beginners. Nice. Um, I got. Uh, I had a really good teaching experience teaching in the creative writing, creative writing department at Parsons this last spring. Um, I think it. I mean, I teach illustration department there too, and it's great. But I think it's the nature of the beast that. You know these these students have uh, a real abundance of effective teachers. So it's different when you're the effective one. When you are the per- when I taught these creative writing students, there were many students in there who weren't getting any. Um, they weren't getting instruction on this on the same material that I was going over with them whatsoever. So I mean, I would mention a I would mention a name in that class, and everybody. I'd, be like, um, oh, this reminds me of John Broadway, and everybody would start scribbling down his name. Illustration course, this isn't. This is just the nature of being a major in, in an art school. You know, if I mention John Broadway to them, or Gary Panner, or somebody else they might not be familiar with, they're just. Sometimes they just look at you exhausted. Right. Uh, just, there will be a couple students who um, who do follow up with those artists and follow and take other things you say like deeply to heart but that's my favorite moment when you're really um when you're really uh that breakthrough that person who's who's the bridge to these things that really make all the difference in their work right right i had to draw the line we had a um a project where we were going to do sequential art and i mentioned the name the name that always comes up jack kirby None yeah. of them. None of them knew who Jack Kirby were, was. And hey. I was like, okay, this is we're going to put aside what we're working on. And hey. I just, I just hammered them with Kirby and Panther and Spiegelman and uh, Dave Sim, just all the the, the guys that uh, Hernandez brothers, yourself, the guys that can tell a story in sequential form, unlike any other. Right. So I just kept punching them with the, with these things. And after a while, they got it. Right. And I could see where the examples I was showing were starting to trickle into their work, you know, and it's it's amazing. It's just an amazing thing to see change in the mind of, of an artist. And, and we put it there. Oh, it's um, I know that uh, Pat Alicio, he when he teaches, he has like a Jack Kirby day. It's it's really um it's it, you really can't go wrong with having a day that you dedicate to Jack Kirby. I've I've um I've done like more, kind of informal versions of it. Uh, usually, I'll just you know I might oh you know what I've done that's really helpful even with my kids students. I'll make them hey stop cats yelling at me. Shut up. <laughs> my, um, you're so cute. My um I, I had a lesson with my kids students where I really I, I was showing them all the seventies Kirby. And I was like, look how free he is with the blacks. And, of course, I'm verging on jumping into something when I show them this that I haven't – I've always been – I've always been a little bit timid about doing as much as I could if you really – if you really tried to emulate Kirby. So it's a good – it's one of my favorite exercises to teach is, um, is stuff that you're teaching yourself. And um, if I – really ha- hover over them 
and say, look how much more you can do with these blacks. Look how much, how indisputably much better it is when Kirby just coats this crazy spaghetti splatter of black on this wall. I mean, you know, that looks like a lasagna noodle like spread over that over over that bookcase. It's like why not? Why are you leaving your space black? I mean, what? Excuse me, blank. And um, yeah, it's Kirby is Kirby's super exciting to uh, to to engage with anytime. Yeah, it's all power, and um, I don't even consider it teaching. I consider it like as I learn from them as much as I hope they learn from me. So mm-hmm. it's it's a shared experience, and that, that, I think that's why I enjoy it so much. Any any chance you can get into a, um, a room with a bunch of like minded individuals and just create? There's no there's no losing. It, it's all win. So so let me ask you something. You mentioned Dave Sim. Do you is he like somebody who was sort of one of your was he uh, a figure that you followed a lot like back in the eighties and early nineties? Oh yeah, up until a certain uh, there's a very particular point where he lost me, but yeah. I I think that sequentially he's 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 a master. Um, if you go through all those uh, from Cerebus say twenty five to about uh, two fifty ish, he's he's impeccable in sequentials. The storytelling is so fluid and natural and cinematic, and uh, there's nuances in it and subtleties. Um, there's a section where he used Keith Richards and Mick Jagger as supporting characters in this one story he was doing, and it's just brilliant. There's there's one uh, sequence where Keith is drunk off his ass in the in the back of a carriage, and Mick says something, and Keith just pops his little head up and looks over the the edge of the door of the carriage, and it's gold, and it's so subtle. Um, but then, I mean, his, his personal opinions kind of clouded things there towards the end. And he went off on this tangent about God and, and, uh, the, the, each page is littered with tiny type, uh, massive strips of type going down the side where he just did this pseudo biblical approach to the narrative. And it just, he lost me on that. It it was impossible to read. I've read only read two things by him. I didn't I didn't even know where to start with Cerebus. But the first thing I read was the Cerebus guide to um self-publishing. Printing. Yeah. Uh, you know, and a t- hideous cover design by the way, but really um holy shit, it's such a he has he literally has a chapter where he spends like two pages about how how to sharpen a pencil and it's fascinating. Yep. Yeah. He's like he's like first I used to have like a really sharp a sharp pencil and then it would get sharp it would i'd have to keep them sharpening it so then i started sharpening like a dozen pencils that i would have by my side but then i discovered that you know the real sweet point for a pencil is right after it's dulled down a little bit right and so then I would have the bunch of pencils that were all, you know, I, I had got into that sweet spot. But then I started to cut my, shave my pencil with a, wait, I, I would use an electric pencil sharpener to sharpen it. And then I would use a razor to get it exactly to the shape I wanted. But then I would do that and then combine it with a mechanical pencil. It just goes on and on. And right. it's kind of amazing. Yeah. And I think he took that obsessive approach to, his art and somewhere along the line that obs- that obsession turned to religion where he mm. was he was so consumed with 
what comes next after you know this world that um he there's something off about his his mindset where he just becomes consumed with an idea and you see that now in his work he's still publishing he does yeah. these 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 one shots where he'll he'll take um a doré image and it's one image chopped up and he uses the same image in every panel and he takes one illustration of Cerebus and he repeats it in those panels throughout the entire book and I read maybe two issues of this thing and I can't tell you what the hell is going on sometimes well, Cerebus will talk to the reader sometimes uh, I get the the feeling that it's Dave Sim talking to the reader um, and it's just about on online social media life and people's reception to the things that he says and it's bizarre but he oh, just yeah. he'll take like a giant doré illustration and he and he'll, he'll focus on maybe the lower left uh corner then he'll focus on like the midpoint of it on one page and he moves it around within the borders of these horizontal patterns it's so bizarre and he makes well, a, st a story out of it he um and, you know, I just, so I'm a pr pretty much a tourist with this stuff. And I do know that, like, people, um, people are, th that, uh, he's just, he's like Morrissey. He's one of those guys who is, um, been completely reevaluated because he, he's viewed as being, uh, toxic and bigoted. And, um, and I'm sure he, he it sounds like he asks for everything he gets in terms of that. But he, um, the other book I read by him was I worked at a comic book store in 2010 and we were getting uh, Glamour Puss or Glamour, Glamour yeah. Puss, I think it's called. Yeah, Glamour Puss. And Glamour Puss was the first thing I'd really read by him. They let me get all my issues half price, and which is kind of appropriate because I liked half, literally half the book. It was in the book, front of the book, there were these inane comics about like making fun of glamour and just relishing in um relishing in 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 um i don't i don't know i don't even know what he was going on about but it was all supposed to be satirical stuff about women and women's beauty and representation but then in the back of it he had that amazing obsessive comic book about the death of Alex Raymond, right. which I, I guess they were going to put out at one point, and then he, he decided nobody would care about it. That comic was amazing. It, it was the parts that I read were as much about uh, the Hardy of Juliet Jones artist as it was about Alex Raymond. Um, do you remember that name of the guy who did the Heart of Juliet Jones? Uh, it's Crane, isn't it? Wasn't it? No, wait. Uh, let me look it up. But he—he's a funny artist because he was—you can find him. He lived a really long time, and he was doing inking on Marvel Comics towards the end of his life. Like he inks like a DP seven annual. Right, right. Um, it's Stan Drake, by the way. Stan Drake, yeah. yeah. Thank you. So Stan Drake, um, did you read that stuff? Yeah, I thought it was great. It was amazing. He had—he had this claimed that there was a feud like almost like a like a gangster rap style feud that was being played out in the subtext of the strips that was all based on 
him depart his departure from the Alex Raymond model of making expressionless faces, right? That and <laughs> and um, claiming that Alex Raymond had a character in in secret in in Rip Rip uh, the reporter character Rip Carter Rip something that was um, that was supposedly making fun of the 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 um, uh, What's the word when somebody's like overacting, the the like over animation of the facial expressions or symbol that were that somehow this was associated with uh, Juliet Jones? It was it was I've ne- I've never read anything like it, but right. it was somehow like a deconstruction of comics, like what like and like a deconstruction of somebody else's comics, and the pages were sort of a deconstruction of comics themselves. I thought it was so beautifully done, and then it was joined at the hip with these really inane, unfunny um, glamorama strips yeah. that were like that I thought were just you know stupid. It was yeah. like really stupid. the his mouthpiece on the Glamorpus stories was this buxom, uh, bubble-headed uh, woman, and she would travel through all these situations, and he was basically um, just making fun of of femininity just the female in in essence just females and i think yeah that's where he gets a lot of his his uh the the haterade is dumped on him rightly so i mean there was a uh, an arc in cerebus called form and void where form was the masculine and void was the female and it, it all stems from his the fallout from all of his relationships um, I mean, his 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 first wife, and and then uh, I think he was with Diana Schutz for a while, and it's just like, uh, and then he decided to become celibate, and it was just all of the uh, the things that impacted him that he attributed to females as being the like this curse upon his life, and so the the void is is uh, the female thing in in Cerebus, and it's ridiculous to read, but that said, all of the personal uh, negativity about Dave Sim and his his wacko views on women and and the world, I don't think any of that has any bearing on the majority of Cerebus. Like when you when you look at a Cerebus page, all of that's irrelevant, and you can just look at the way he approaches it and he he uh, unravels a scene. It's brilliant, but it's done by a monster, unfortunately. A monster, yeah. I was reading Nick Cave's defense uh, or his his defense of Morrissey's work, if not Morrissey's the person, uh, today. It was really eloquent. I'm a big Nick Cave fan. And he said that um, he said that, you know, once you write a song, he's like he's like, I think that, you know, Morrissey's views are really, uh, uh, you, you know, I think they're really reprehensible. But he's like, once he writes a song, it doesn't belong to him anymore. It's it, people. You put it out there, and it's um, it, it's adopted by people who live with it, and you know, memorize it, and have their own interpretation with it, and have it be a soundtrack to their lives. So he's like, um, you know, I, I guess it goes into a discussion about separating the art from the artist. So if, if you can say that, like, Cerebus still stands up. You know, by the it's it's um it can uh, I can see I can see a parallel there. Yeah, uh, that's with any form of art, right? Once you make it, it's not yours anymore. 
once another another set of eyes fall upon it upon it or a set of ears yeah. can consume it it's gone i mean it, it's be, become something else well that's the way it's supposed to be right you know box box brown's writing a book right now about nostalgia and he thinks that it's a, i think part of the um part of the um um uh uh what's what's the word for when you're writing a paper and you have a uh uh, so I, I, I can't think of the right word, but we'll say the synopsis is about how he thinks a turning point is when Disney started making it something you could get sued over where you when you um, if you if you like bootlegged like your own version of um, Mickey Mouse or whatever, the way they started policing it so much. He was like before that, you know, I mean, there was always copyrights, but traditionally the myths that were out there people when at people made jewelry based on hercules you know they made they made um uh, uh you know they made wood gravings based on johnny appleseed and now um the idea the modern era is all about these corporations owning these um these properties and uh, i don't it, it's his comic so i mean he'll he could talk to him he could talk to it more than i could but um he's it's his uh, idea is about how much nostalgia is driving things right now and about the effects that um, the modern form that nostalgia has taken have uh, have have, ta- have um, the way it's impacted like the modern fan psyche. Right. Well, all you have to do is look at the current state of the motion picture industry where it's countless reworkings of things that have come before. And uh, there's not a whole lot of, of new ideas out there because nostalgia is so powerful. It's yeah, especially now where our generation has grown to the point where, you know, our kids are, are coming up and, and we spoon feed them our loves from the past and then they run with it. And it's I think nostalgia is, you know, it's never going to go away. It's just going to get worse. Yeah. Yeah. All right, my man. We've kept you longer than we told you we'd keep you because you're <laughs> my <laughs> pleasure. That's all right. So, um, seven issues, all time comics, once a month until uh, they're done, coming yeah. out of Floating World. And you have a book, Tomorrow Forever, the latest yeah. uh, unraveling of the Theth uh, mythology that's coming out from Tinto Press. And what else? You're always uh, working on something. Oh yeah, I'm on to my next project. That's um, uh, it's hard to describe, but I'm doing a really personal book right now. It's um, I took uh, I took the advice that other creators have um, put out there that you should have another project planned that you can jump into as soon as you're done with the first one. I mean, not only do you have more work to do, but you don't get uh, you you don't get into this weird directionless post-project crash crash and so i've been working on this other project for about uh, 14 months wow uh the one thing i uh i have learned from you and i continue to learn is that uh one should always be working because you are constantly banging out stuff and um like on the socials i see stuff from you every day and it's the one thing in this world i can bank on is that you know (laughs) new day you're going to see something else from josh bayer yeah, I had an, I had enough years of being a um, of being sort of aimless when I was in my twenties, and when I kind of really got my feet 
a planet under me with comics. Um, I, I didn't want to lose my balance again. So I've, I've been going pretty constantly since I went back to school in two thousand in the early two thousands. Yeah. You're an inspiration, my friend. Thank you, brother. Thank you so much. Not a problem. All right. Well, I mean, we loved having you. And once again, that door is always open. Next issue comes out, come back on. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Any, so uh, any questions for, uh, Josh before he saunters off? When does the, uh, when does the book from Tinto come out, Josh? Uh, September 14th for SPX, maybe a little bit earlier. Nice. I just actually, a friend just sent me a book from Tinto this week. Uh, it's weird how that works. Um, and, uh, and I was like, oh, that's cool. So they seem to be on the come up. Um, they sent me uh, Jason Walls' Homesick. I don't know if you've read it. but Oh, awesome. Um, yeah. Awesome. So looking forward to it. Cool. All right. Great. Thank you. My man. Thanks for being with us. Bye, guys. See ya. Have a good night. That was good. Of course it was. Anyways, no, it's always, I mean, as creative as, as Josh is on, on paper to just um, listen to him talk about whatever. Uh, it was a good time. I, I had a lot of fun with that. Yeah, he gets into it. I mean, as expected, right? All you have to do is read his comics to know he ain't playing around. Yeah. No. Yeah. He's a fascinating dude, too, because he comes off as both unassuming and really intense about his work. Right. Yep. Which is hard, a hard combination to t- Like, that is an unusual combination. I have a hard time not slathering him with praise. In every breath, because I, I'm, not, I'm not shitting when I say I think he is the best at what he does currently. I don't think there's anybody making comics. It may break some hearts out there, but you mean you know this. I don't think there's anybody better than Josh at making comics right now. He's just he's he's a, he's a force to be reckoned with. And how he said about I forget who he was talking about. He said the kid's going to go down as 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 you know he's going to be known. Um, after his passing, Josh is going to go down as one of the great comic creators. There's no doubt in my mind. So there we go. All right. Well, I hope we en- you enjoyed that as much as we did. Uh, as always, this episode has been sponsored by, you know who, Discount Comic Book Service, DCBService.com. They'll get you what you want at a price you want to pay. The best way to say it. In your travels, I'm obsessed I'm in love and I'm obsessed. David, what, uh, aside from reading actual comics, what is my second biggest love about the comics, uh, the medium of comics? Say say that again, please. Aside from reading actual comics, actual sequential art, what is my second love in terms of comics? I always buy them when I go, whenever we go to a convention. What do I always come home with? Magazines. Zines, yes. Oh, zines, right, right. I'm I'm infatuated with zines. Whether it's Rocket's Blast, Comic Collector, or the the, the Comics Journal, Comic Scene, Comics Media, whatever. If it's a comic zine that I don't have, chances are real good I'm going to buy it. And um, I was introduced to... um, a zine that is currently on issue number three. This is called Bubbles, an independent fanzine about comics and manga. And I am smitten. But there is one uh, little teensy tiny caveat emptor, and 
I am convinced that along the same lines as uh, Ben Mara likes to litter his work with seemingly um, ham-fisted or misguided or just plain wrong bits of anatomy. Like we know for a fact Ben Mara does it on purpose. Hands are too small, heads are too big, bodies are just strange at times. Ben does that on purpose. The bubble zine is, I don't want to say riddled, but a lot of times there's uh, spelling mistakes, there's grammatical errors, and it's in the old Rockets Blast approach. It looks like linotype, like old uh, typeset uh, font that's just all strung together, a jagged ragged right and it's he'll do an interview with someone as in issue number two he interviews sammy harkham and sammy talks about kramer's ergot and the road to the latest issue and they talk about the giant kramer's ergot and and all the problems that arose when publishing that but he does obviously in an interview there's a back and forth the the weight of the font that he uses for the questions is almost imperceptible. It's so faint. You really got to look to see it. And then when the interviewee speaks, it's almost, it's not bold, but it's at least readable, right? And warts and all, that's what I love about this fanzine. It, it's a, a loving, honest investigation of comics. And like I said, issue two, interview with Sammy Harkham. Then there is, uh, there's a, a size uh, comparison between all the versions of Kramer's Ergot and, of course, the uh, the giant Kramer's Ergot 7, which I don't have, by the way. Jason, you have that, right? Mm-hmm. Bitch. Um, so then it goes into this weird eBay thing where he'll scour eBay and he looks for notable items that have been on sale, auctioned off on eBay. And one of them is a little handwritten letter by steve ditko that is typical ditko someone wrote steve ditko questions seemingly a bunch of questions (laughs) and ditko replied dear jeffrey no answer for your questions regards steve ditko and that was the entirety of the letter and someone auctioned this off on ebay there's a there was an auction for zap comics number one a first printing that was destroyed semi-destroyed in um a fire at the Maori Opera House. And this person is attaching a pedigree to this issue of Zap Comics, which it already has. But because this was burned in this Maori Opera House fire, he, he was charging a premium. There's uh, an interview with M. Thomas Inga, who is a, a notable fanzine person. Then there's a, a look at the uh, family circus and how uh, Keen changed the look of mom's hair. And it's it's uh, a dissection of the look of her hair over time periods. And it's really cool. Then he talks to Catherine Gates. Catherine Gates was instrumental in getting Gary Bur- or Charles Burns and Gary Panther together for that, that Facetasm book. And he talks to her about her gallery and the things leading up to Facetasm and Narrative Corpse. And it's a wonderful interview. Um, uh, let's see. What else is in here? There's some comics, and then in the back pages, uh, first of all, he 
dissects, there's three different versions to Drier's uh, Delirious, and he goes into the differences in each published version. And then before he leaves, he throws some, some quick comic reviews at you. Jesus Freak and um, GoBots by Tom uh, Scholey, The Freak by Matt Lesniewski. Uh, and it's just an amazing zine. Um, now number six by Fanagraphics. It's old school, and I love it. And it's six bucks, printed in black and white on, you know, fairly heavy paper. You can get it at, well, a lot of people have it. And there's a thank you on the back of it, of the second issue. Copacetic has it, The Beguiling, Atomic Books, Kilgore Comics, Ad House has it, Floating World. You can get this thing everywhere. So if you just do a search for Bubbles... You'll, it'll come up, and it's just a joy. I love it. Um, Ryan Holmberg is in the second issue or the third issue. Tetsunori Tawaraya, who I, whom I love, third issue. Like this is a no lose situation, and I love every page of it. So it's called Bubbles, an independent fanzine about comics and manga. Bubbles, yes, that's awesome. Love it so much. Thanks, like stuff, Parker. What else you got? Uh, in your travels, I'm going to keep this short. Um, I figure I'll go into some of the other things in more detail next time we meet. But um, The Weatherman has returned for Volume 2. Uh, I read the first issue, and Jody LaHoop and Nathan Fox continue to knock me on my ass. Um, the first volume was... A visual feast for my eyes. I, I enjoyed the story a lot. And uh, we're picking up pretty much right where we left off with the end of the first volume. And, uh, you know, they're still, um, they're still working on restoring Nathan to, uh, to Ian. Um, and if that's confusing, then you should have read the first read the damn book people um but you yeah, know the art is still fantastic i i don't yeah it's, it really is it, it it's just a continuation and and mm-hmm. it's just it's it's a gorgeous gorgeous looking book um might have sprinkled in a little bit of um of new characters and uh we we get we see the president a little bit more um kind of flexing some muscle, which was nice to see after the first volume. And um, there's some tension uh, in in this little ragtag group that we have that's uh, trying to, I guess, eh, right or wrong, maybe one way to say it. But yeah, and we're getting a little bit more info on on what caused um, the bad things that happened in the first volume. It's, It's just... Check it seriously. If you haven't, uh, there's really no excuse now because the first volume is collected, and the second volume just started. So uh, it's very easy for you to catch up. So please do and read the Weatherman, published by Image Comics. Well said. I think um, I think with this next round of care packages, someone's going to be getting my issues of uh, of it because I have the trade now. So excellent. Yes. And Nathan Fox is so freaking good. Like, and this is, this is, I'm always going to use this example for how good Nathan Fox is. He's so good that he drew a commission 
of the movie version of Domino for me, even though I explicitly provided him reference of the comic version. He's so good, though, that I actually loved it and didn't have a problem with it. And that's freaking good. Because you all know I specifically asked for the comic version of Domino. <laughs> oh, we know. <laughs> yes, yes, you've heard that a time or two. Yes. Uh, in your travels, speaking of series that you should be ca- caught up on if you're not, shame on you uh, if you aren't, but give a read to Gideon Falls by Image Comics, written by Jeff Lemire, with incredible, jaw-dropping, astoundingly career-best art by Andrea Sorrentino. They have collaborated together many times before. Um, They're a nice uh, peanut butter and chocolate combination. But um, I talked about the first volume. Now we're midway through the third volume. Um, Issue 14 uh, is the most recent issue. And it's just so good. And it's so much more than... I thought it was in the first volume when it looked to be a really intriguing uh, psychological horror book. It is that, but it's so much more. Um, You may recall from our prior conversations that the title of the book refers to a small town in the South where um, uh, there's been, um, well, over the course of the town's history, there have been a number of murders and odd killings. Um, recently there was a disappearance and a murder. Um, as a result, they have a new preacher in town named Father Fred. Father Fred is a very complex dude. He's kind of job hopped around uh, to different churches because uh, he's been an alcoholic. He's a recovering alcoholic. He also had an affair with uh, one of his parishioners, a woman, a married woman um, that kind of got him in hot water. And he's turned into a bit of a uh, fixer where the church sends him into tough places and he's been sent here. Uh, he and the sheriff um, quickly become uh, like a Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid situation. And they're investigating the mysterious uh, disappearances and murders that have happened, including this thing called the Black Barn. Flash forward, sort of in a parallel, we're seeing the story, um, we're seeing the story unfo- unfold of uh, a paranoid schizophrenic uh, in the uh, in New York City, who uh, is so like he he, he sees um, he sees uh, this conspiracy in everything. Like anywhere he walks, his name is Norton Sinclair, by the way. But in everywhere he walks, I mean, he'll see like a nail on the street, and he'll be convinced that it's part of the Black Barn, or he'll see symbology and be convinced it's it's a, it's a sign from that. And as a result of this, he's under intense psychological care. It's very he's been committed before, um, but as we find out, he he's he's not he's not mental. He actually is seeing these things um, over the course of say the first volume and a half. Uh, these stories are told in parallel, but um, we know that they both have. We know that both sides of this story have a connection to the Black Barn, and there's something insidious about it. But we don't quite know much more than that. Um, through the second volume, we we get a lot of those answers. We see the connectivity. We see that this grand conspiracy theory has a lot of meat to it. And then in some, and then in, in typical linear fashion, just when you think you've got it all figured out, he hits you for a wallop, which is to say that we get a glimpse into the Black Barn, we get a glimpse into the antagonist, uh, who's known as the Smiling Man, and Sorrentino makes him look scary as hook. And suddenly we realize that it's so much more than that, because the Black Barn is kind of, it's like a conduit to other times and dimensions. 
And then we realized that the missing person that that both sides have been looking for may in fact be either Father Fred or Norton. We don't quite know that yet, or it may be neither. But but we have a, there. It's kind of hinting that it could be one of them displaced in time or from a different dimension. Um, it's pretty pretty bananas. But um, I know it probably sounds a little wild and complex. It is complex, but Jeff is such a tight storyteller that. Uh, if you read it, it's all going to fall into place very nicely. Um, yeah, it's just great stuff. I was talking to Hassan about that this week. I mean, I, I definitely think this is shaping up, especially with the the time and space um, thing added to the mix. Uh, this is shaping up to be one of the best books that Image is putting out right now. And, um, you know, I, I, I presume we have a ways to go here because we're just kind of unraveling the next layer of a grand mystery. But uh, it's freaking great. It's really, really great. So if you're a fan of psychological horror then uh, by all means, uh, get up on it. And Vince, you know, you should know that, um, that uh, this is, um, this, this, this came about because there were two ideas that Jeff's had forever, like back since he was like an early creator in the early 90s, neither of which he could ever quite make work. One was about the Norton Sinclair character, and one was about this idea of the Black Barn, which he said he got um, inspired from Twin Peaks. Mm, Black uh, Lodge. Like, yeah, the Black Lodge. Now, this is very different. Like, it goes in a very different direction, but that was the impetus. He got this kernel of an idea from the Black Lodge at Twin Peaks, and he could never make either story totally flesh out. So one of his friends said, why don't you try and mesh those together? That could be cool. And then that's what gave birth to Gideon Falls. So, um, yeah, it's pretty dope. And I think there's a TV show in the works, but I'm always reluctant to talk about that because, like, it seems like these days any cool comic gets optioned, and then very few of them actually make it to TV. So, um, But theoretically, there's one in the works. Nice. I'll have to uh, catch up. Yeah, I don't know if you would like it in the sense that I don't think you're a big fan of Sorrentino's art, right? It's a little too I don't re- mind. Re- realistic. I don't mind okay. it. Yeah. Okay. And then you, I also think you're not a huge fan of like psychological horror, right? No, I do. Uh, come on. No, Love- but I mean, like this isn't gory at all. No, but I mean, Lovecraft is my second favorite. That's true. Okay, that's yeah. true. All right, cool. Yeah, then you should try it. I will. Thank cool. you. And thank you for listening. Because we cannot do this without you. And come back for the next one really soon. Like, really soon. Yeah. Um, We would, again, like to thank Josh for talking it up with us. Once again, the man is a peach. And we loved having him. So uh, come back soon. Check us out on the Twitters and the Facebooks and and the Instagrams. And check out our Patreon while you're at it. Patreon.com forward slash 11 o'clock comics. We're there for you anytime. So you come back here, Mick soon. We'll be back um, very, very shortly. And like we always say, what, 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 what? Say goodnight. I'm not going to bang on anything this week. <laughs> David. Uh, night. You're not going to bang on anything this no. week, right? No. Okay, so David. There you go. Yeah, we be spot on. BT Dubs, this is June 30th, and it's our sixth episode of the month. As promised, people. Yeah. We get them out there for you. We do. We hit that. This is our job. Well. No. It's our passion. It is our passion. Okay. Well, I consider it a job because I am. Uh, I have an Let's consider it. No, I have an impeccable um, work sense. 
If I'm, if it's my job, I will do it. If it's just my passion, uh, there's something on TV that I might want to check out. <laughs> you just got to say you don't watch TV or read or whatever. I'll go, you know, take a walk. I got you. Make a picture. All right, we're out of here. Come back. <laughs>